Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website. I acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen, unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who have cared for this land since time immemorial, and I pay respects to Elders past and present. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Coming up on the show today, I'll be joined by local poet and essayist Fiona Murphy to speak about her debut book, The Shape of Sound, which is an exploration of sound, silence and the self. It is a memoir about the corrosive power of secrets and how deaf experiences and disability are shaped by economics, politics, medicine and societal expectations. Very much looking forward to chatting with Fiona. That one is out through text publishing. Later on in the show, I'll be playing a piece from All the Best. If you're not familiar with All the Best, it's a show where emerging Australian audio storytellers learn how to make stories. It's a weekly podcast and community radio show produced at FBI Radio in Sydney in association with SIN and Triple R here in Nam. Today, we'll be hearing a piece all about a cat. So I hope you can stay with me. Secrets are heavy, burdensome things. Imagine carrying a secret that if, explo- if exposed could jeopardise your chances of securing a job and make you a social outcast. Fiona Murphy kept her deafness a secret for over 25 years. The Shape of Sound is the new memoir by local essayist and poet Fiona Murphy and she joins me on the line now. Fiona, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Oh, thanks for having me, Beth. It's my absolute pleasure to chat with you. Um, it's, well, it's my pleasure to chat with you. You know, you have done such an amazing job with this book. I absolutely have loved delving into your words over the last week or so. You kind of open this book by disclaiming the difference between lowercase d deaf and uppercase d deaf. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, absolutely. So uppercase D deaf um, denotes that deafness is of cultural significance, whereas lowercase d deaf is more diagnostic in um, what it represents traditionally. Um, So there is quite a difference in kind of viewing deafness as being something innate, uh, something that you should feel proud of and a part of who you are as a person and your experience in the world. And I think it's a really important uh, difference to kind of establish because a lot of people assume that hearing loss would be a tragic condition to have um, and something that must be overcome, whereas I've been fortunate enough to discover and learn about deaf culture and deaf pride, which has been absolutely life-changing for me. Mm. I think you do yeah, a really great job of kind of dismantling the binary that I think a lot of um, the hearing community hold of kind of either being deaf or not deaf. Um, and, you, you know, you show it as a spectrum and <clears throat> that deafness is not just zero sound. It's not just silence. I, I'd love to know, you know, what was that like to learn for you and kind of learn about um, the, the spectrum of deafness in, in regards to your own experience? 
It was really revelatory for me because as a child growing up, there wasn't a whole lot of deaf role models about. Really, the only sort of deaf representation I had was Helen Keller, and she um, was profoundly deaf, and in my head, I got the idea that Real deaf people have absolutely no hearing at all and they can communicate with sign language. So it created like this immense sort of disconnect, the idea of the deaf community and deafness. And for a long time, I really struggled with um, how to label myself. Was I half deaf, half hearing? Was I a little bit of both or was I nothing at all? And really, um, it was only when I started to kind of get to know other deaf people in my late 20s that I discovered that a lot of people experience this sort of um, difficulty with the labels because they come with such um, baggage and expectations, which is really driven from hearing people. Hearing people um, have this uh, really specific idea of who a deaf person is, even what they look like. So to be a young deaf woman um, and to disclose that to people, I would get a significant amount of pushback of like, how can you be deaf? You don't sound deaf. You don't look deaf. You're way too young to be deaf. Uh, so it was quite challenging uh, initially to own uh, an openly deaf identity. Mm. Yeah, you do really write about uh, just growing up and, you know, going through school, training to be a physio, all of the things that you kind of do in your 20s. And, you know, as you said, your kind of attempts to pass as not deaf, you know, really actually straining your body trying to hear or trying to read lips and, you know, something that requires a lot of effort um, in the body. And, yeah, you write really interestingly about this embodiment of how you experience um, sound and language, you know, in that kind of attempt, I think, early on to avoid the stigma and and perhaps unlearn that shame. Um, Can you, I suppose, speak about that a little bit more, what that experience was like to just try and overcome that stigma? You kind of spoke about... um, you know, when you started to meet people, that's when you kind of opened up for you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, To be honest, I didn't realise how much I compensate um, to kind of come across as hearing because I've been doing it since a child. So it was really only when I sat down to kind of write about deafness and my experience of deafness that I was like, oh, hold up. I am constantly, um, and even today, still... um, automatically kind of downplaying and kind of hiding my deafness and confusion in conversations and discomfort. Um, It's a really physical um, way of kind of uh, downplaying deafness and it's something that I'm definitely trying to undo those habits and become a little bit more open and proud about it. But I think pride definitely takes practice that's a saying that comes up often within the disability community it's really only being around other deaf and disabled people and kind of having really meaningful conversations of how do you cope how do you ask for access how do you navigate the world that hasn't been built for you um that I've learned so much and recognize that um these are skills to learn how to advocate for yourself and it definitely doesn't happen instantaneously and I'm really passionate about making sure that um, people who, whether they grow up with a disability or acquire a disability later in life, that they have the support and sense of community and connection because it can be an incredibly lonely experience if 
you don't have other people to kind of uh, discuss and figure out um, how to get through the world. Mm. Yeah, I think it's um, it's it's so interesting, and you, you kind of write about um, that somewhere in the book. You write about how. Well, I mean, throughout the book, you kind of write about how writing, the act of writing is very important um, for you in kind of um, learning how to, I suppose, tell your story and learning how to um, think about your experience of what it was like to kind of conceal this part of yourself. I'm interested when you are writing about something that is so close to the bone that has been a really kind of, it's been a big challenge. It's also been really amazing. But what was that process like for you to like write those experiences down? Uh, it was so tricky. It took um, a lot of attempts. And to be honest, because I was so used to hiding my deafness, I didn't even know where to begin. So when I started writing um, what would eventually become the book, it was initially a, a collection of essays. And I spent about 18 months researching everything about deafness and I kind of got really nerdy about it, trying to understand what is hearing, what is deafness, what happens in the brain and the body for us to kind of understand sound and communicate. So I got really into a lot of medical research. And when I started writing, I did not include myself on the page at all. It was really dense and academic and it was really um, sort of distance and it was from some people they're like this is kind of a strange way of approaching something that you experience where are you on the page um, what is this about who is this narrator and I was terrified terrified to put myself on the page at all but it's taken a lot, a lot of drafts and reworking for it to even become a memoir because for so long I didn't have the language to express kind of um, the emotional impacts of passing his hearing and um, even how to disclose something that I've hidden for so, so long. Mm. So it wasn't a straightforward process at all. It was definitely quite an iterative process of uh, learning and reading how... Um, other disabled writers approach writing about their bodies. Mm. There's this um, line in your book um, in the shapelessness part where you say, it's said a writer lives twice, once in the moment, then again in the retelling. Perhaps a deaf person lives many more times, first in the anticipation of a conversation, then physically alert, ready to latch onto each sentence, phrase, word, a short life of, in every syllable, then reliving the aftershock of conversations, replaying them, wondering, did I hear that correctly? I, I just feel like that um, perfectly kind of encapsulates what you're kind of saying about, I suppose, just the um, the effort in um, not only like straining the body to listen, but then also in how you retell it and I suppose your experience of the retelling. I'd love if you can, I suppose, expand on the, um, the your, your writing practice a little bit more and I suppose, yeah, what impact your writing practice has had on kind of um, continuing to to learn about the ways that you engage with language, particularly, um, I suppose, in the context of, you know, you write about the intimacy of learning Auslan and, and learning sound and language through the body. I'd love to know, I suppose, how that relationship with this new language has changed the way that you write or think about writing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, definitely, I think my deafness 
informs how I approach writing uh, in a range of different ways. I ruminate a lot about ideas and conversations, and I think that's definitely a sort of a necessary survival tactic for having hearing loss of kind of analysing, did I hear that correctly? Did I understand what they were saying? And really kind of unpicking um, words and phrases, and that's how I approach ideas and reading and writing is that I write in short fragments and I really spend weeks and months, if not years, kind of circling an idea and different ways of phrasing things and questions. So I'm really slow, muddled, fragmentary sort of writer. Um, but I've really tried to um, embrace that about myself. So I don't get too kind of um, caught up in creating beautiful, perfect sentences because I know that I'm going to rewrite them a hundred times and think about it for a very long time. And um, it's still kind of shocking and amazing that um, I managed to actually get to the end of uh, this project and that it's uh, an actual physical object because it's been scattered in hundreds of Word documents and on notepads and on the back of envelopes and receipts and things like that because, um, yeah, I kind of uh, write in tiny little bursts and on the notes section of my phone. In terms of how Ausland has impacted my writing, it was really challenging of trying to find ways of presenting sign language on the page that was meaningful and in a way that respected the language. Often uh, sign language is kind of flippantly described. I feel it's flippant. Um, people describe it as a beautiful language. And that's it. They don't talk about how intellectually rigorous it is and mm. complex with kind of the grammar and how it's a holistic language involving a sense of spatiality and hands and lips and eyes and ears and it's so whole and complex and I was really um, I spent quite a lot of time reworking the scenes that involve people communicating in Auslan because I really wanted readers who hadn't had the opportunity to um, think about sign language on a deep level to kind of really guide them through the process of starting to understand that this is a language. Mm -hmm. It's Ausland is not based on English. It is a, a language in its own right and it's complex and it's got syntax that is nothing like the English language at all. So I was really grateful and um, lucky to have an editor um, who is a translator, um, Penny Houston. And she really understands languages and how to present them on the page. So we went back and forth quite a lot about how to do it respectfully, um, but also enjoyable and easy to read. Mm. Yeah, I really loved uh, the parts where you kind of, it was quite detailed when you spoke about how people were signing. And I remember one part in the book where you talk about how tenses are relayed in Auslan and it's something I hadn't thought about before. Um, I'm interested, do you feel like through learning Auslan, it's changed the way that you um, relate to the English language? It's kind of interesting, um, through the editing process, I didn't realise how deaf I am on the page. 
in terms of I do miss out a lot of prepositions when writing, so kind of the little tiny words of after, and I just, even when I'm really trying to be conscious and alert, I just skip over them entirely, um, and they remain elusive to me even when I reread my work and things like that. And interestingly, in Auslan, those words, there are no signs for them. They just don't exist. So it was kind of, um, it went from something I was really quite ashamed of, of like, oh, God, I've got no grasp on English, um, to being kind of like, oh, this is kind of magical to think that my deafness is still kind of showing up in ways that I can't control and is always present so despite spending decades trying to suppress and hide it it's kind of breaking through um which is really lovely Mm. and in terms of the language itself I think Auslan has given me a wider vocabulary just like when I studied anatomy at university to become a physiotherapist it's added to this vocabulary of understanding how um the body can be represented in time and space in so many different ways. So it's been quite exciting. Mm. If you have just joined us, we are chatting with Fiona Murphy about her new memoir, The Shape of Sound. Um, Fiona, I'd I'd love to talk about the structure of the book and the way that um, the book is broken up into the lifespan of sound. It's got attack, decay, sustain, release. Can you speak to that decision to structure the book in that way? Yeah, um, that decision came quite late in the piece. Um, I knew for a long time that I did want to segment the book, um, mainly because I felt that by breaking the book up would kind of add a little bit more white space, um, kind of white noise, and just give a little bit more sort of of a distinction between the ideas because I really wanted to um, create a book about ideas um, more so than just necessarily focusing on myself. And I tried a whole bunch of different ways of trying to figure out how to segment the book and they're absolutely horrendous ideas, which thankfully... um, my editor dissuaded me from using them, which is great. And then I um, spent a long time kind of researching sound theory and music. Um, and when I came across the idea of the lifespan of sound being attack, decay, sustain and release, it was this beautiful kind of synchronistic moment of realizing, huh, that kind of really fits nicely with the themes that I'm trying to explore of living in a deaf body and a body that is becoming deafer, but a body that's becoming prouder at the same time. So it was kind of my way of trying to reclaim the idea and that vocabulary of sound theory and music and kind of saying, hey, uh, deaf bodies can love sound and music too. Like it's something that we can enjoy um, and we should be allowed to. Absolutely. And and you do such a good job of, I think, bringing uh, or situating your personal experience within the um, 
the wider disability community, but also, you know, you can really feel that it's been really uh, rigorously researched. You know, I've also read your piece in Growing Up Disabled in Australia. It's been a massive year year for you and it's, you know, it's not even April yet. Um, I'm interested when you think about your work sitting alongside your piece in Growing Up Disabled in Australia, like how how do you feel like these books have kind of um, are shaping the literary landscape? I think it's a tremendously exciting time for disability literature in Australia. Um, I feel so um, excited and optimistic, um, particularly because there's more and more books that are being commissioned by disabled writers. And to be honest, I think it's some of the most exciting writing in Australia at the moment. Um, Hysteria by Katarina Bryan and Hearing More by Jessica White, Show Me Where It Hurts by Kylie Maslin, The World Was Whole by Fiona Wright. These are just some writers in Australia that are kind of um, rewriting the way that we view bodies and the way that we view um, the systems and structures that are in place. Um, and I'm just so thrilled to um, to be a part of the disability arts community because it's uh, honestly such such an exciting place. I absolutely wholeheartedly agree. It's very exciting um, as a reader to be able to experience these worlds through these words and books. Um, and yeah, just a massive thank you for uh, coming on today and just for your for your wonderful work. It's been a pleasure to chat to you. Oh, thanks, Beth. Absolute pleasure to chat to you as well. Uh, We were just chatting there with Fiona Murphy, who is the author of her new memoir, The Shape of Sound. It is out now through text publishing. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. The next story comes from All the Best. It is a show where emerging Australian storytellers learn how to make audio stories. Uh, It is a weekly podcast and community radio show that's produced at FBI in Sydney in association with Sin and Triple R here in Nam. And the next story we're about to hear comes from episode uh, one of their latest episodes called Animal Attachment. The first time when Wing saw Alexander, she knew she was meant to meet him. They had a great time together, but it was also their destiny to farewell each other. Would it still be counted as fate if it was just temporary? The first time I saw Alexander, I knew I would fall for him. It was a photo of him sitting under the sun. His arms surrounded his chest, his eyes half-closed. He's really handsome, said Heidi, the auntie who introduced him to me. Alexander came to my place in late October, when Melbourne was still in lockdowns. I met Heidi outside her car. She took out a carrier from the front passenger seat. I walked closer, and I saw a big black cat lying down on his belly. He looked at me with his big yellow eyes. And that's Alexander. He's four years old, and he's my first foster cat. Since the first lockdown started in March, I had been considering fostering cats. As an international student, I lived alone in a high-rise while my family was miles away. During this time, loneliness is my companion. 
and I wanted to find emotional support. Fostering happens when street animals come into care, as they can't be listed for adoption immediately. Some of them are already used to the wildlife on the street. It takes time for them to get used to indoor living. Foster carers offer a temporary home for these cats before their adoption. Aristotle once said, "Humans are social animals. At a time like this, we certainly seek companions." Including from our furry friends. Two days after I submitted my application, the rescue group contacted me and told me about Alexander. Before that, I only saw him from the photo. He was first seen in a street in Bandura in April. Since then, he visited almost every household on the street for food. They believe it was time for him to relearn indoor living. And my apartment would be a good fit. I named him Alexander because I wanted him to be as brave as Alexander the Great. At first, Alexander hid under the sink in my bathroom. He was just dissexed and a bit unsure about the new home and me. Alexander, Alexander, Alex, look at me, Alex. Look at me. But a day later, he started stretching the bathroom door, demanding to have a tour of my place. He walked cautiously, tail pointing down. And two hours later, after I returned home, I found him sitting on the couch, less stretching out. He heard the noise, turned his head to me, as if he was the king. Once he saw me, he climbed down from the couch. Walked around me and rubbed against my legs. He even licked my foot. It was a tremendous feeling. The moment when Alexander touched me, it was like something was connected. Since the second lockdown began, I had been feeling isolated from the world. I sometimes even felt I was living in a boundless dark room. I forgot the existence of time and space. And the fear that I would never be able to reach people hovered over me all the time. But the touching from Alexander was magical. I mean, his claws were so long that he almost hurt me. He kept scratching my couch too, and seemed determined to destroy it. But despite all this. Alexander's presence and his action were like a message. It meant I wouldn't be alone for the rest of the lockdown. And for him, my companionship could also be healing. Alexander was scared of being left at home. He followed me everywhere. When it came to my sleeping time, he would jump on the bed but rest on its edge, so that he could stay without disturbing me. It's still unclear why Alexander appeared in the street alone, but usually there could be two reasons. Some people might lose their cats when they move out, or they couldn't afford their pets, and rather than sending the cats to shelter, they just dump them on streets. But whatever reason it was, he was abandoned, and he had a tough life. 
He loved food so much, and every time when he saw something that looked like food, he would chew it. And therefore, I had to keep an eye on him. Why I found this funny, I couldn't help but wonder what he'd experienced that made him so desperate about food. His interest in food even extended to the delivery man. Every time when he heard the bell, he would come out and welcome the delivery people. Alexander also found out my daily routine. When it was my time to wake up, he would call me, jump on and off the bed until I was awake. What are you doing? Huh? What are you doing? Why? When I was working, he would quietly sit next to me, or sometimes sleep on my lap. When I was out for groceries, he would see me off at the door, and when I came back, even before I inserted the key. I could hear him mewing on the other side. Alexander and I didn't understand each other's languages, but it seemed there was a line that drew us together. In Chinese culture, we have a spiritual element called yuan. It's similar to the concept of fate in the West. However different and distant you are from each other, you will meet if you have the fate. If you don't have the fate. Whatever efforts you make are just a waste of time. So why did Alexander appear at this time, if he's my fate? Soon I had this answer. It was Saturday night. I remember, someone I saw as a friend for four years suddenly disconnected me from social media. I was later told that they felt annoyed to see my messages, even if the latest message I sent to them. Were just a check-in during the lockdown. I lied on the couch, reflected on the previous good time we had, and I cried and cried and cried. The lockdowns certainly had been a special examination for relationships, and sometimes the outcome could be heartbreaking. All of a sudden, I felt something jump on. It was Alexander. He climbed up. And then sat down closely next to my shoulder. He looked at me, moving even closer. I raised my hand, wanting to touch him, but he suddenly bit me. He immediately ran away to a further spot, but still stared at me. His sudden bite stopped me from crying, and as I gaped at him, I realized that was his message. Don't be sad. I'm here with you. That was the moment I knew I wanted to keep him with me. I gave Heidi from the rescue group a call, telling her that I wanted to keep Alexander. Then I lied on the floor, watched Alexander, and reflected on the magical bond we had. It was like the empty hole in my heart was filled—a feeling and belief that from now on, I am no longer lonely because of him. A few days later, I received a long rejection message from Heidi. She explained it took great effort for the group to rescue a cat. As a temporary resident, I would be likely to return home one day, and I worried about the long haul flight that Alexander might need to suffer. Even if it was a small possibility, they didn't want to lose him. Me either. When I received the message, 
Alexander was having a nap on the couch. If it was fate for me to meet him, then why did we need to say farewell? While all these emotions flooded towards me, Alexander was still asleep. He was like an angel when he fell asleep. You could even see his little tongue before he moved in. Heidi told me that Alexander often had his dinner with a lady on his street. One week before he moved in, he was found sleeping on the lady's couch. He must have missed living indoors. Maybe that's why we met. At the time when I suffered from loneliness, I had Alexander's companionship. On his way to his forever home, he was able to stay with me and have regular meals and a safe, warm place to sleep. It had been a special time for us, and I knew this from our farewell. Two weeks later, Alexander was adopted. While waiting for his new human to pick him up, I talked to him. This is our last time seeing each other. I won't forget you, and please don't forget me. Alexander rubbed my leg and licked me, as if he understood. As I said bye to Alexander, it was the end of a relationship, but it's also the beginning of many new relationships. I chatted regularly with Alexander's new owner, who also happened to be Chinese. She would send me updates of Alexander, and we decided to catch up in the coming weeks. I also started fostering new cats. What are you doing? Hmm? <laughs> Did you just purr? Sometimes I still miss Alexander. I once googled about cats' memory, and it seems they do remember who has fed them. I hope Alexander would remember me, and that's how our yuan continues, packed away in the treasure boxes of our memories. You're listening to Triple R. That was Meow to Be, produced by Wing Kuang, with supervising production and sound design from Mal Chun. You can check out All the Best wherever you get your podcasts from. If you do want to get involved with All the Best, they are currently accepting autumn pitches. It's a great way to learn how to create radio stories. You don't have to have any experience. Can't speak highly enough of all the best. And to find out more info, you can head to allthebestradio.com to find out more. I do want to say a big thank you to wonderful essayist and author Fiona Murphy for joining me this afternoon to chat about her new memoir, The Shape of Sound. It is out now through text publishing. So do hope you can tune in next Wednesday from 1 o'clock. Keep a lot to triple R. This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. 
We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website.